more often than I'd like to to admit. Every now and then, uh, we'll be watching TV, and Jess feels the need to let me know all the people on the TV who are more attractive than me. (laughs) You guys ever do that? She's not saying, hey, he looks way better than you, but she talks about them in a way that she doesn't talk about me. And she starts describing them, and they don't look anything like me. So let me just say this, ladies. If you're, if you're constantly saying something like or thinking something like, it'd be nice. I don't want a different husband. You know, I'm not saying that. I don't want that guy. But it'd be nice if my husband was more like this. And you start describing um, Chris Hemsworth, who's 6'3", you know, Thor from the Marvel movies. Um, Australian accent, blue eyes, very chiseled, looks nothing like me. I'm sure is also very sensitive, probably also gives honest, loving, but helpful feedback on wardrobe choices. <laughs> all the things that women are looking for, I'm sure he does all that. And, and, and consistently, when my wife's like, he is so attractive, you know, and she's not like, oh, he's hot. No, he's a very attractive man. I know what you're saying. And I also know that he doesn't look anything like me. And so when you're saying those things to your overweight or under height or just not 6'3 and chiseled husband, he's got a right to wonder if you mean it when you say, I love you just like you are. <laughs> and, and it feels like maybe that's not as real. The reality is people that we love often let us down. Um, the who they are is not exactly who we would have sculpted them to be if it had been put in our hands. In addition to all that physical stuff, people that we love have to say things to us that we may not want to hear. They're not always exactly made in the image of what we desire them to be. You think about your parents when you were a kid. Did they always say the things you wanted to hear? Did they often say the things you wanted to hear? And then you became a parent and you realized you were saying all those same things uh, because they were probably more necessary than you knew. Sometimes your spouse says the very logical thing that you need to hear and you can't stand them for it in the moment um, because it's true and you just want to be frustrated. If you've got a mentor or somebody like that or a close friend that sort of serves in that role, Um, If they always say what you want to hear, they're probably not a very good mentor or parent or spouse. Because when somebody who's significant in our lives, uh, if they're going to play any sort of a significant role, then there's no way on earth they're always going to be just who we want them to be and say exactly what we want them to say. Check out this picture. There's a picture up here, and, and it's a household idol. And um, I, tried to, um, I tried to find a picture. I took a few pictures of these when I was overseas. <clears throat> but um, in a lot of Buddhist homes, there are these, these worship centers right in the home. And it's pretty convenient because uh, there are a whole lot of different little, their ancestors, but then there are also pictures of different gods. And, and what's pretty convenient is if you're going through a struggle and you need the God of power, you can pray to the God of power and, and they'll be helpful to you. And they won't hold you accountable for anything else. They'll just help you where you need it. And, uh, and if you're having fertility problems and, and, and you, you know, that's a big focus of yours right now, you can pray to the God of fertility right there in your house, and, and they'll help you with that. Um, but they won't hold you accountable for anything else. 
And there's this whole thing where people are, are just sort of, I want the God that I want when I want them, but I don't want all, all the other pieces of God. When it comes to God, I think that often this is how we prefer him. We prefer him to, to give us what we want when we want it, be pleasing to us. Don't challenge me in areas I know I need to get better at. I don't want to feel a whole lot of conviction. I just want a real little God, almost like a genie, you know, who just does what I want. But I want a genie with unlimited wishes, but nothing else. I don't want any of the rest of the strings. I want something like that. And some of you may be tempted at this point to say, well, I definitely don't have one of those, so I think I'm not doing this. And, and I definitely don't have those kind of things going on, so that's not me. But here's how you know if you're guilty of, of, of trying to serve the little God, of trying to put an, an idol in the place of God. Here's how you know if you're guilty. For one, if you think Jack from This Is Us or Jennifer Lawrence should be who your spouse is. No, I'm kidding. But, um, but those things aren't good. You should stop doing that to your spouse. But on top of that, here's how you know if you're guilty. That's one of those things I say where it's not very funny, but it was funny to me in my head anyway. Um, here's how you know if you're guilty. Does your, God, does your God ever make you mad? Does he ever confuse you? Does he ever contradict you? Because if the God that you've built up in your own life always agrees with you, Unless you are also God, then that is not God. Because you will not always agree with God. And because entrenched in all of my plans is a little bit of selfishness. I want good things for, to happen around me, for the people around me, but I have a selfish motive too. And, but the thing about God is His plans are perfect. They're never selfish. They're absolutely what I need right when I need them. He's got this perspective of eternity, and he is undoubtedly, because I don't understand much, he's undoubtedly going to do some things that I do not understand. And so there will be times that I just don't feel like he's agreeing with my agenda. And there will be times that I feel like I don't get what he's doing at all, and sometimes he'll make me downright mad. Sometimes I'll just be super confused. And if you always agree with your God, that's not God. That's just an image of God that you've created. And here's the big problem with that God. That God will let you down. See, here's the thing about God. You have a relationship with Him. And how many relationships do you have where you always agree with the other person in the relationship? Yeah, so I don't have any of those either. Um, I, I say often about my marriage that uh, Jess and I, even just outside of being married, we've been together um, like in March. We've been together 16 years. And I'm not that old, so it's been a long time. Um, uh, next year, uh, when we hit 17, I'll have been with her for over half my life. Um, we've been together for 16 years, and I always say, we've been together 16 years, 15 of which I cherish. And, and intermittent in there, maybe equaling up to a year, there have been parts that have not always been awesome. Uh, some people would say, uh, love is a dream and marriage is the alarm clock. <laughs> and, uh, and it sort of wakes you up from all that. Um, I'd say this too, you know, Molly has been on this earth about four and a half years. And, and some people say, man, if I could redo something, I wouldn't redo any of it, you know. And man, if I could redo some of it, I would redo some of it. There were like six weeks in there where she was real colicky and I felt like I was going to die. I would cut those out. 
Those would not be a part of the picture. And so no matter what relationship it is, there are pieces of it that are challenging. And if your relationship with God is never, ever challenging, that's not a relationship with God. And like I said, the problem with that relationship is the God that you've created will absolutely let you down. And here's the other thing. If you've created an image of God in your own mind, then that's, that comes from your thoughts and your understanding and your perspective. And imagine trying to solve the problems of the universe with your understanding and your perspective. I can't solve my own little problems with that amount of knowledge. I don't want a God who only knows what I know. I want a big God. We need the real God with unlimited knowledge, unlimited power, and eternity of wisdom, who never gets sidetracked, never gets surprised, and will never, ever let us down. That's the kind of God that I serve. And I never want to settle for anything less. Exodus 32. So that's where we're going to jump in. In Exodus 32, these people went above and beyond where we went, where we go sometimes. They actually built an actual image to, to, to sit and worship. Um, here's what they did. Here's what lets you know how this can happen to any of us. Okay, So, so this kind of thing can happen to all of us because look what God had just done for these people. Right before Exodus 32, right? So, so passing from Exodus, Exodus chapter 1 to verse 31, here's what God had done. He had delivered these people from the most powerful empire in the world. No tools, no, I mean, no, no uh, weapons, no battle, no nothing. They didn't have to do any of that. He just delivered them from the most powerful empire in the world, and they literally walked away. And so that they could walk away, there were ten supernatural plagues where imagine that you live here, and there's another house right there, literally, right next door, and, and they're having the worst nightmare of their lives. There are frogs everywhere that are overtaking the house, and there are fleas everywhere, and it's just a nightmare right there. And none of that's happening right here. And God does supernatural plagues, and they get to walk right away. And then when they walk out, you know, it's, it's like the Oprah show. Nobody leaves empty-handed. So, so when they get ready to go, God decides to take the richest people in the world, all these upper-class Egyptians, and to get them to go away faster, they, uh, they take off all their gold and all their jewelry, and they just give it to them. And they say, here's all of our wealth. Take it and get out of here. And so that, they've been enslaved for, for hundreds of years, and then that happened. So God did that. And then if that wasn't enough, God led them. Have you ever said, where is God in the middle of this? And they never had to wonder this because God was literally, they could see him. He was in a pillar of cloud uh, and, and he was just right ahead of them all the time. And any time they needed, they could look up and see God. And then there was, he was in, in this, this fire, he was in cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, and they could always see God directly with them. Never had to wonder if God was involved. And if all that wasn't enough, maybe you heard this little story where they got to a big body of water and they were like, oh no, where are we going to go now? And so that they didn't have to walk around, God just split the whole thing open and they walked right through the middle. And all of that happened, and I mean is so recent in their memory, it literally happened within the past couple months. All of these things going down and then... Their pastor was late for a meeting, and they concluded, God must have abandoned us. I hope you don't feel that way when I'm late. 
they concluded God must have abandoned us. And so Moses goes up and he's taken forever up there to to come back down. And so this is what they do. Verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so... Moses is up. He's meeting with God. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and they said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. And this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt... We don't know what has happened to him. And Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, you know, the ones the Egyptians gave them, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and they brought them to Aaron. And he took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterward they sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in revelry. How about that? All that God had just done and then Moses is gone a little longer than they want and they're like, forget that God, let's make a new one, you know, out of our gold earrings. You know what? You know what he actually says. What Aaron says when um, when Moses come down, Moses is like, "What did you do?" And he's like, "I don't know. We just melted down their jewelry, and next thing you know, a calf jumped out of the fire." <laughs> and we were like, "Man, we got to worship this thing. That was incredible." Um, all that happens, and here here's what I believe. In this ancient story, there are three points here that connect so well with us, where we are, and what we're doing. And even though we've never melted down our jewelry and created a calf. At least I never have. I don't know if you have. Um, we have created many idols to stand in the place of God. And here's, here's where it begins. Look at the beginning of the passage. Here is, here's what happens right at the beginning. These people are very, very afraid. And we absolutely create idols when we're afraid. See, here's what happened. These guys are really afraid. It's like this. They're scared because Moses has said to them, or here's what they're doing. They're walking through this foreign land, and they, and they have so much gold and so much jewelry, and they're so afraid that they're going to get robbed. And they're so afraid that somebody's going to overtake them. It'd be like walking through the French Quarter at 2 in the morning just with, and, and, and the amount of jewelry they had, like this is tons and tons of money. It'd be like having a million dollars and just having it all in cash showing out of your pockets. And the only difference is God told you to do it. <laughs> and so you're like, I'm really, really afraid that someone is going to rob me. And you would be very justified. And so they're so afraid that something bad is going to happen. It's a legitimate fear. There are people with no army, no military leader, no big walls built, no fortress in front of them. And they're walking through a land of giants. And they're pretty afraid that they're going to be overtaken. And what happens is we create idols when we have fear. Sometimes I have fear that I'm not going to have enough money. Sometimes the fear is reality. (laughs) And I don't have enough money. Um, We create idols when when we don't have enough money sometimes. And and we we know that we need money and we've got to have it to survive. And it's a legitimate fear. And it leads some of us to, to create a God that will guarantee us money if we live right. There are churches that, that all they do is preach this idea that if you give enough, you'll have enough. And because they have a fear of not having enough, they believe this whole thing. It's called the prosperity gospel. And, and ironically, usually the only person who's really wealthy there is the one who's preaching. 
Some people do that. Some of us don't go to those lengths when we, when we create an idol out of money. Some of us just overwork, and work becomes the idol, because we, if we overwork, we'll guarantee we always have enough. And some of us give less, and if we don't give any, and then just hanging on to the money becomes the idol. Recognizing that everything that we have is God's to begin with anyway, but money becomes the idol because we have a legitimate fear. And if you've ever been so broke that you couldn't afford food, and praise God I haven't been there, but I have some students that are telling stories to me about getting home and having zero food in the cabinet and how awful that is. And man, I can imagine that having been there, it's hard not to create an idol out of money. But we create idols because of our fear. Sometimes we fear insignificance. Sometimes that fleshes out in our job too. You become a slave to your job because that makes you significant. You know, being somebody important at work makes you significant. The job becomes the idol. Sometimes we fear being insignificant, so we buy the biggest house that we can, and the bank always tells you you can afford more than you can really afford. And, and we max all that out, and so we build a really big house so that we look significant. Sometimes we buy a really nice car. I feel so conflicted every time I talk about vehicles now. Um, Sometimes we buy a really nice car because we fear insignificance. And and if we got nothing else, if our house is awful, if if everything else is awful, a really nice car says we've been some sort of successful. And we put all these idols to make us feel significant. Sometimes we fear depression. Depression. And we fear depression and we fear being lonely and left alone. And so we party as much as we can. And we get out and we do those things as much as we can to ensure that we're getting the most out of life. And what we do with idols is we take good things in life and we turn them into bad things. Man, party and celebration, God invented it. He loves a great celebration and then we turn it into something bad. You can do great things with a nice car. You can work with it. You can get to work in it. You can give somebody a ride. You can do really nice things. Or it can become an idol and no one's allowed to be near it. And no one can sit in it. And we create, we we make it this thing that could never serve anyone but ourselves because it's the idol. And we take something good and we turn it into something bad. Do this. Recognize what your fears are and you'll see where your idols are. Recognize what your fears are, and you'll see what your idols are. But here's the second thing we do. Here's what we do with all those fears and those idols. When we create an idol, here's what we do. We create an idol that meets our needs, but that never, ever challenges us. That's what idols look like. They meet all of our needs, but they never challenge us. You see, in this time, the bull, this bull was a symbol of protection and strength. And so these people were really afraid that they were going to get robbed or mugged, and so they created an idol out of a bull because the bull could protect them. But here's, here's what's kind of crazy. Right after they created, it says, so then they have a big party to honor this thing, and it says they sat down, they worshipped the bull, and they had a big meal, and then Scripture, the actual translation says, and then they got up to play. Because then they got up to play. And that word play actually has some sexual connotations to it. And so they had a God that would protect them when they needed protection, but didn't care at all, honestly, let me scan the room for children, didn't care at all about this big drunken orgy that they had. Man, that, that was convenient, right? 
doesn't call me out on anything that I don't want to be called out on, but absolutely is going to protect me and do all the things I want it to do. And that's what idols do, is they give you just what you want, and they don't hold you accountable for anything that's bad for you. And the problem with this God is that it's not God, and that it absolutely will let you down. After this night, there were um, single parents in Israel, and everybody knows that's ever parented by themselves. Heck, I had Molly by myself for two days. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to die. I don't know how people do this. And, uh, and, and man, there were a lot of struggles faced right then. And, and, and man, that's what idols do, is, is they, they, they let us do things that we shouldn't do. And man, things get really, really challenging. And man, what good is a God? What good is a parent? What good is a spouse that never says, hey, you're headed for something challenging here. Hey, this is probably not a good path. Man, that's not a God at all. It's about as good as worshiping a golden calf. Man, I want a God that says, flee from that. And then when I fall into sin, doesn't have the ability just to continue to stand there, but then picks me up out of sin. That's God. An idol God doesn't do that. When you create a God in your mind that always agrees with you, always gives you what you want, never challenges you, you end up with an incomplete God that isn't capable of anything at all. And the bad thing about these counterfeit gods is that what happens is we start complaining when this fake God doesn't meet our needs. And and so many people at this point walk away from God because they say, God just didn't do for me what I thought he was going to do. That God was insufficient and unreal. And the reality is it was never God in the first place. And the irony is people lose faith in a God that was never God at all. And that's a sad thing. See, our God is, if your God is, is holy and just and He always punishes everything, but He's never compassionate and gracious, you know what it makes you into? It makes you into a mean religious person. And any sort of an incomplete God that's not the real God leaves you looking worse than you were before. If your God somehow is gracious, but He's not righteous and holy, then you'll find yourself always, always looking for, you know, always going with whatever culture says is acceptable, and you'll find yourself uh, calling okay and acceptable what God calls abominable. And anytime you serve a God that's incomplete, you come out looking worse. So that's the choice that gets presented to us. A fake God that never confuses, never contradicts you, but who ultimately always lets you down. Or the real God, who's beyond understanding, beyond control, sometimes confuses, sometimes contradicts you, can be really challenging at times, but has the power to save and sustain you. I want the second one. Let me end with this story. I had a student, I was a youth pastor in Mississippi. I was like an an intern, youth pastor kind of thing. It was about eight months. I had a student that came to church a lot. He was was like sort of involved, but I could tell he wasn't really bought in. You know, he, like a lot of kids in, in the Bible Belt South, you know, his parents came to church, and so he came to church. But I could tell it didn't mean much to him. And, um, and, and he was, you know, he was kind of like, yeah, you know, I come and that kind of thing. And uh, I saw him a few years ago, and I sort of reconnected with him. We became friends on Facebook, and now, you know, he posts a lot of stuff. And, and the other day I saw this. This was probably like a couple months ago. But he posted this thing, and he said, um, 
Let me find where I wrote it. He said, um, I used to follow a God that hated gay people and hated alcohol, and I realized that those things weren't so terrible, so I gave up on Christianity. And let me be clear, um, the Bible does have something to say about drunkenness, and it does have something to say about same-sex attraction, but it's not that. And We can flesh out what all that is at some other point in time. But, but the reality is he came to believe something about God that wasn't God, and he left a God that never existed because that God was insufficient and inconsistent. And never having encountered the real God, he left the whole thing without ever really seeking the God of the Bible. And that kind of thing scares me. Pray that God, here's, what, here's my prayer for you, here's what I pray that you would pray for yourself. Pray that God would reveal himself to you completely. At least if you're saying no, you're saying no to the real thing. Pray that God would reveal himself to you completely and that you might get to enjoy the richness of serving a one true God. Complete and totally lacking in nothing. God, I praise you.